All right, welcome back to another edition of the Mo News Podcast. I'm Moshe Wanunu. Today, we're doing a deep dive into poverty in America. I'm speaking with Matt Desmond. He's a sociologist and professor at Princeton University. He's the author of a New York Times bestseller called simply Poverty by America. We discuss his personal experience with poverty, what led him to be so interested in it, and try to figure out what's wrong in the richest country on earth and why we have such an issue with poverty. We talk about some of the inaccurate things that have become sort of assumed in America and why we have it wrong when it comes to poverty, including how many Americans benefit from poverty. It's the sad truth behind our situation in, again, this richest country in the world. So he did a fascinating deep dive. I think you'll find this conversation a great entree to his book. And we discuss why he thinks it's easier to solve poverty than one might think. We also get into why it's not just about government, but consumers and how we can change things as far as the companies that we support. Before we get started here, a reminder to consider joining Mo News Premium for early access to podcasts like this one, as well as extra content over on our private Instagram account for members only. It's a way to support what we're doing here at Mo News, support original reporting, independent journalism, and frankly, just support what we're doing on a day-to-day basis over on Instagram, in the newsletter, and on this podcast. You can get it for just $7 a month or $70 a year. There's two free months on the annual package. Sign up today over at mo.news slash premium. All right, with that, here's today's conversation with Matt Desmond. So it's a pleasure today to be speaking with Matt Desmond. He's a sociologist, professor at Princeton University, and the author of the book Poverty by America, a New York Times bestseller. Matt, thanks for joining me. That's good to be here. Before we get to the book, I want to talk a bit about your story. As we talk about poverty, you mentioned in the book your experience with it personally as a child when your father lost his job, and then later as someone who studied it. Yeah, I grew up in a little town in Arizona, uh, Winslow, Arizona, like in that Eagle song. My dad was a preacher, and we never had any money. Uh, We got our gas shut off sometimes, and and we had to do some bell tightening. And then when I was in college, I went to college after just scrambling for scholarships and loans and and working all the time. We lost our childhood home before everyone else was doing it. So, and, you know, kind of went through the foreclosure crisis and and felt the kind of humiliations and pain that poverty brought on my family. I think seeing my family stressed and pressed by poverty kind of motivated me to study it. Got it. So, th- so that inspired you to then make it your profession. You you then went into studying housing, poverty, eviction in Wisconsin. Tell me about that experience uh, working alongside poor tenants, uh, what that taught you about poverty in America. It taught me a lot. So for my last book, Evicted, I lived in a mobile home park and then moved into a rooming house in the inner city of Milwaukee. And I lived in those neighborhoods for about a year and a half. And I followed families getting evicted. And I went everywhere with those families. I slept on their floor and ate from their table, watched their kids, went to a bunch of funerals with them, was there for a birth. And I think that that exposed me to a kind of poverty that I'd never seen before and never experienced before. You know, I saw kids getting evicted on a routine basis. I met grandmas living without heat in the winter in Wisconsin, you know, just Mm. praying the space heaters, you know, stayed on all winter. And so I think it showed me this deep bottom layer of poverty in America. And it also showed me the human cost of the housing crisis and, you know, made me realize that without stable shelter, you know, everything else falls apart. As a journalist who's been in this profession for nearly 20 years, you having had that personal experience, how much of the story is the news media missing here? How much of the story 
are Americans who don't live in this situation really understanding, really getting from what you witness? I think that there's this line in my new book by Tommy Orange, the novelist that I quote, and he writes, these kids are jumping out of the windows of burning buildings, falling to their deaths. And we think that the problem is that they're jumping. And when I read that, I was like, man, that's like the American poverty debate, you know, because we have all this attention on the jumpers, all this attention on the poor. And we're asking questions about their work and their family and their neighborhoods. And we should have been focused on on the fire, you know, who's who lit it, who's warming their hands by it. I think that's a challenge for, mm-hmm. for news media to try to expand the aperture to understand that if we want to fundamentally understand the causes of poverty, we have to look beyond the poor. So you begin with the question here as to why the United States, the richest country on earth, has more poverty than any other advanced democracy. Why we allow one in eight children to go without basic necessities, the high homeless rates, the lackluster wage growth. Big picture here, broad strokes. What did you find? Why do we allow this to happen in the U.S.? Why are we the way we are? I think in a way we like it. Who likes Um, it? A lot of affluent Americans do. And I think a lot of affluent Americans benefit from poverty in ways that they they might not understand. Without directly thinking about it. You're not claiming some sort of sick joy people take in seeing people impoverished, more that the system itself benefits those who are wealthy? Yeah, but I, I kind of stay away from system language, not because it's not accurate, but it's absolving. You know, it's kind of like out there. The move that I'm trying to make in the book is to get you and me and everyone probably listening to think about how our consumer choices and our voting habits and our neighborhood decisions aren't just different from those of, of struggling families, but, but often come at their cost and that there are winners and losers. And sometimes there are winners because there are losers. And so all this poverty in America, it's a policy choice. But that's just another way of saying it's a, it's a community choice. It's choices that we're making on a day-to-day basis, not just in Washington. What types of choices are we making? I mean, you, you spend some time here drawing the lines between the haves and the have-nots and to what extent the haves benefit from the have-nots staying that way. Yeah. So many of us consume the cheap goods and services that working poor produce. Uh, many of us are invested in the stock market. Don't we benefit? When we see returns going up, even with those comes at, at someone's cost, the cost of low wages. Many of us don't like paying taxes, and we support this unbalanced welfare state in America, where the richest among us get the most from the government, actually. And then we have the audacity to say we can't afford to do more as a country to fight poverty. And then many of us continue to be segregationists. You know, we, we live in affluent corned off communities. Uh, and there's a side effect of that. You know, this concentration of, of, of privilege also creates concentration of poverty outside of our walls. So in those ways, I think a lot of us are, are unwittingly connected to the problem, but that also means we're connected to the, the solutions. So to what extent, comparatively, is this a uniquely American problem? Give us a sense, you know, for, you know, those who aren't familiar of the systems that exist in other advanced democracies and other advanced capitalist systems that prevent the situation that we have here in the U.S.? So in normal years, our child poverty rate isn't just higher than like in Germany or South Korea, for example. It's, it's double. It's double those rates. Um, by some measures, 5 million Americans live in extreme deprivation, like on $4 a day or less. Wait, say say that again. How many Americans live on $4 a day or less? Around 5 million. This is according to an estimate by the economist Angus Deaton, my colleague at Princeton. 
mm-hmm. um, you know, that's an s- extreme level of poverty that we thought only existed in faraway places. And so there is growing evidence that America not only has a lot of poverty, you know, everyone who's under the official poverty line today formed a country, it would be bigger than Australia, right? Mm. We have a lot of poverty, but we also have a kind of a depth of poverty that you don't see in other advanced democracies. So why? You know, why? And this is to your question. And the simple answer is that those countries have made deeper investments in protecting people from provision. So we collect about 25% of our GDP in taxes every year as a country. Uh, Switzerland, Sweden, even Ireland, Italy, the Netherlands, they're collecting between 35 and 38% of their GDP in taxes. That just allows them to do more for their, their people. And so that's one of the reasons those countries feel so much differently on a ground level when it comes to poverty than, than our, our country does. So is it as simple as raising the tax rate here? I, I know you go into depth here um, in the book, but I mean, is it as simple as just the government needs to spend more money? Because in many cases in this country, you know, we spend more on healthcare in America and, yeah. you know, than anybody else. We spend a lot on education in America and, and yet don't have the same systems. So is it as simple as a check? Not for me, but checks help. Checks help, you know? And I think that we do need to make deeper investments in fighting poverty. If you look at just the housing crisis, only about one in four families who qualify for any kind of housing assistance receive it. And the vast majority are just stuck on these waiting lists that can stretch into years, into decades. And so most poor families who are renters spend most of their income on housing costs. So clearly, this is a way we could deepen our investment in making sure everyone has a safe, affordable place to live. How do we fund those investments? Now, you talked about raising taxes, and I think that there are plenty of smart policies that we can get behind for sensible tax raises, especially among the richest Americans. But if we just like just collected the taxes people owed, actually. Yeah, what's your estimate there? Well, it's not my estimate. There was a study that came out a few years ago that showed that if the top 1% of Americans just paid the taxes they owed, they stopped evading taxes so successfully that we as a country could raise an additional $175 billion a year. So just to put that number in perspective, $175 billion, we could like double our investment in affordable housing and still have money left over with that sum. We could just about pull everyone above the official poverty line with that kind of number. And so I think that... You know, it's interesting, right? Because when we talk about these issues, some of these some of these ideals sound like pie in the sky and far away and we're never going to get there. And some of them are literally just as simple as, hey, could we all just pay the taxes we, we should? You know, it strikes me, you know, we're coming off of a couple of years here of COVID. And interestingly, the numbers as we speak here are out in, uh, in terms of poverty in America. The poverty rate rose the largest one-year jump on record yeah. to now uh, 12.5%. The poverty among children is more than double to 12.5%. Yeah. And this comes off of a couple of years of declines, especially during COVID, when the government was providing direct payments, uh, rental help, extra money for kids, et cetera. And we spent trillions of dollars. Your number is $177 billion to get people back above the poverty line. And yet we just came off of spending trillions. How, how did that not work? Well, it did work for a little while, right? Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, we saw these incredible historic investments in the American people during during COVID. So one of the crown jewels of the American Rescue Plan, which Biden signed into law in, in March 2021, 
was something called an extended child tax credit, which basically became like a universal child allowance. Mm-hmm. You know, it reached middle class families, working class families, poor families. And that was a big reason why poverty decreased by like 44, 46%, depending on the estimate, in six months. Six months almost cut poverty in half in this country. So what we're seeing with these new numbers out is we're not only seeing us come to the end of those policies, but we're seeing a reversion back to normal and this huge jump, jump up. And this breaks my heart, actually. You know, this is, I think this should shame us as a country. You know, this is the most important thing we've done in the lives of the poor since the war on poverty and the Great Society. And then we just let it all slip away. And we didn't have to. So on the spending, though, it doesn't have to cost trillions of dollars to defeat poverty. You know, one of the reasons the spending bills were so large was because a lot of the money went to businesses. So about we spent about $800 billion on the Paycheck Protection Program, which were, you know, checks to businesses didn't seem to actually protect paychecks. You know, it didn't, it didn't actually save jobs. It did seem to save businesses, you know, yeah. on the one hand. But by some estimates, 75% of that money went to folks already in the, the top 20% of the income distribution, the owners and the shareholders of those businesses. So there are clear ways that we can, we can you know, that wasn't efficient. That wasn't really anti-poverty, you know. We were throwing lifesavers to folks that weren't drowning. And so I think that there's a way that we can do this in a much more efficient, targeted way. Yeah, what's interesting is you talk about, and I think you, you mentioned just briefly earlier, about how the affluent actually get more from the government than the poor. Your numbers here in the book, the average household in the top 20% receives just over $35,000, while the average household in the bottom 20% receives about $25,000. So the richer get about 40% more. Explain how you got to that number, because I, I think many people would find that surprising. I found it surprising. I think of all the things that I learned writing this book, this one was the thing that knocked my socks off the most. So this number comes from doing the dirty work of going into government documents and digging it out. Like how much does the government spend on us? So there's things that that we think of when it comes to government spending, like housing assistance, food stamps, social security. So we calculated all those things, but then there's tax breaks. And a lot of us are like, well, a tax break, that's different. But if you think about it, it's not that different. You know, both a tax break and a welfare check can put money in your pocket. They both cost the government something. And so I think that we, you know, if those of us that get a mortgage interest deduction, for example, for owning our home, that can come at tax time or the government can send us a check. You know, it's the same difference. And so we, we counted tax breaks. And so when you do that, when you add all that up, you see that we're given the most to families that need it the least. And this is what I'm talking about when we're talking about the imbalanced welfare state. And for, for me, this has profound implications. And it means that we need to just stop repeating this, this lie that we can't afford to do more because the answer is clearly staring us straight in the face. We could afford to do more to expand economic opportunity if we stop doing so much to guard fortunes. Well, I was going to say, you know, we, we speak at a time where, you know, they just have to increase the debt ceiling again. We're in 30 plus trillion dollars in debt. And Matthew, your solution is we got to keep spending. And obviously, <laughs> spending doesn't pull well. Americans don't like government. Government's inefficient. You know, I've covered politics for a long time. And the biggest cheers you hear at rallies, sometimes even among Democrats, is, you know, we're going to cut spending. We're going to cut waste. Yeah. Government spends too much. So, you know, we're already $30 trillion in debt, Matthew. How much more do you want us to spend at this? How, how far into debt do we need to go as a country? to solve this? So for me, there's clear pay-fors for these programs. And those pay-fors come from fair tax enforcement. Mm -hmm. 
and they come from rebalancing the safety net. So let's just kind of drill, this is kind of wonky. So let's drill into like one, let's drill into housing, for example. So every year we spend about $50 billion on direct housing assistance to the needy. That's like public housing, Section 8 vouchers that reduce people's rent, that kind of thing. So $50 billion. Every year we spend about $190 billion on homeowner tax subsidies, like the mortgage interest deduction, which you could take on your first home or your second home. So you can deduct your RV or your yacht or your vacation cabin. And so most of that mortgage interest deduction goes to families in the top 20% of the income distribution. So that's not morally defensible, you know? And so I feel that, you know, I think we should increase spending on affordable housing, but that doesn't mean we have to increase the deficit. We could clearly do so if we reduced how much money we're spending on things like the mortgage interest deduction. And you can repeat that exercise over and over and over again in the tax code and get deeper spending uh, paid for by fair tax, you know, revisions, which doesn't increase the debt. But it would mean that those of us that are affluent, that have found some security, would need to take less from the government. But of course, you know, we have politicians where we have a two-party system here. And so where is the incentive for the politicians? You know, one thing you get into in the book is the divide between where the American people are on these issues and where Washington is on these issues. How do you create an incentive for a politician looking for re-election next year to do any of these things, given that this would be unpopular with a certain section of voters? It would. But I also think that the book makes a case that a lot of us want this country. You know, poverty is infringing on American life, even the American life of affluence in a way that is scary and is troubling and is and is depressing. And I think a lot of us don't want like the worry that we have about what's going to happen to our kids. And we don't want this idea that we're, you know, one car accident away or one divorce away, you know, from real hardship. And so I think that this is a bargain that a lot of us would be okay to make. But you're right. There's these huge political challenges. And I think that we have to force Congress's hand. And I think that we can find hope in the 60s. The 60s were Congress was a mess. You know, Democrats from the South were aligned with Republicans. They blocked um, progressive reform. They filibustered. They slept in their offices. You know, government obstructionism was the goal you know, in the 60s. It's looked a lot like it looks today. But in that situation, a lot of stuff got done. We got the war on poverty. We got the Great Society. We got massive civil rights legislation. How bipartisan was that at the time? It was pretty bipartisan, actually. Yeah. But I don't think it would have happened if the labor movement and the civil rights movement hadn't just raised hell, you know, and and pushed Congress's hand. And so we have to have a, a bigger movement, and that movement has to be made up of a lot of different kinds of Americans, or else you're right. We are going to just kind of live with this obstructionism and do nothingism. You know, I found it remarkable. I, I was a, a campaign reporter in 2008, and um, John McCain wasn't very well publicized, but I remember because I was on the campaign bus, went to Inez, Kentucky, one of the poorest parts of Kentucky. It was a place where LBJ had gone in the 60s to talk about the war on poverty. Uh, McCain went back there in 08 to say, we need to be addressing this sort of thing. And I remember, you know, there's nobody cared. Uh, I remember trying to call like headquarters, like, hey, we should get this on TV today. And they're like, eh, who cares? And it was just remarkable to me that, you know, the same city, and by the way, it's been 15 years since then, I mentioned INS has not improved that much or any of these places, how we've allowed this to just continue to 
you know, five, six decades without any real plan or incentive to do anything. It comes in a country where I hear from a lot of people all the time. I give to charity. I want to help the poor. Where is the, again, the divide between the amount of money that goes to charity, the, the fact that pe- people are sensitive, people are empathetic, people care about, at least they say they care about this stuff, and how we allow this to continue to persist. I think there is a growing number of Americans that are done with all this poverty and all this inequality. I think there's a growing number of both Democrats and Republicans. This isn't just me looking out my window. You know, this is in the data. You know, most Americans now think that the rich aren't paying their fair share of taxes. They're right. They think that the minimum wage should be higher. They're absolutely right. It hasn't been raised in 14 years. Most Republicans and most Democrats now think that poverty is the result of unfair circumstances, you know, not someone's moral failing, for example. Globalization. What do you mean? Well, among the culprits that people like to throw out there is, well, China's, you know, messing with us. It's the rest of the world. I mean, among the the blame you hear from politicians that tends to play well on the stump, immigrants, single family households, uh, China and the world. And, you know, NAFTA was renegotiated to a certain extent by Trump. Um, these are among the things people list as like what's keeping certain amount of Americans down. Yeah. You, you want to go through them? <laughs> I think it would be use, a useful exercise here to talk about some of the biggest boogeymen to a certain extent that are thrown out by politicians for why Americans are kept down. And by the way, this is red Americans and blue Americans. Yeah, I mean, you totally. hear it you hear it across the country, across um, races. Yeah. All right. Want to start with globalization? Sure. So uh, globalization has had an effect on economy, of course, but everyone's in part you know, globalized. And other countries that are also, you know, washed over by the trends of globalization have a lot lower poverty rates than we do. So it raises a question about why. And it certainly suggests that these trends aren't inevitable and we're not swept up by forces beyond our control. Other countries have weathered globalization with a lot less poverty than we have. Next, immigration. So immigration has increased a lot since the 60s. Uh, we have uh, the percentage of foreign-born folks in America today is not quite, but almost at the height of what it was in the, the 20th century. So there has been a big growth of in immigration. So if immigration is causing poverty, then we should see a big growth of poverty. And we haven't during that time. We've seen poverty become pretty stagnant. By some measures, it's gone down, but I think that by the measures that I believe, it's it's been pretty stubborn and persistent. And by measures of hardship, it's gone up in recent years, but that doesn't really trend with immigration. So three states have the biggest immigrant populations, California, Florida, and Texas. These numbers are both legal and illegal, undocumented. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's right. Yeah. So poverty's actually gone down. Uh, over time, as as Texas and Florida have have increased their share of foreign born, it's about it stayed the same in California during that time. When you think about the undocumented population, you could think, hey, you know, these guys are dragging down poverty by competing with Americans for jobs, or they're they're a drag on the safety net. You hear these kind of two things. On the job front, there's just not a lot of evidence. You know, most immigrants are part of the immigrant labor market, which means they're competing with other immigrants for jobs. And um, there just isn't strong evidence base that immigration is is causing Americans to lose their jobs. On the welfare safety net point, there's really strong evidence that shows that over the course of their life, the average immigrant is going to pay more federal taxes than receive in federal benefits. And this makes sense because a lot of folks aren't eligible 
for benefits from the federal government if they don't have a social security number. Single parents. Yeah. Families. So again, let's look to other countries. You know, in other countries, single parents aren't disproportionately poor like they are here in our country. So it's it's true that single parent households face poverty at much higher rates than other households, but that's in America. That's not like in Italy or Ireland and other countries. So again, we got to ask why. And what you see the difference is those countries have made investments in things like paid child leave and childcare that we just we just haven't. So like having having kids by yourself or out of redlock, that's a individual choice, but condemning those families to poverty, that's a that's a societal choice. What is the, I mean, we talk about these other examples of these other countries. You, America's unique. It's 350 million people. Yeah. It's diverse. It's large. We're at a scale that, you know, is not Germany, is not England, is not France. Yeah, that's totally fair. I saw a speaker once say, you know, it's it's easy to have a welfare state when everyone looks like your cousin. And that's fa- that's a fair point, you know? And I think what we're trying to do is is something really unique. You know, we do have a much bigger and diverse country. But our economy is a lot bigger, too. Our economy is a lot bigger, too. And so we just have massive resources in this country, which makes me like so confused about this scarcity language we hear all the time, that we just can't afford to do do more. To me, it it strikes me as very un-American. Like when I think about what makes America America culturally, one thing I love about the country is how often bombastic and ambitious we are. Well, I mean, we're the greatest country that God ever created. Matthew. So let's let's target that ego towards ending poverty in this country. This is a goal that's attainable. This is a, a a goal that we used to have as a country. Like when LBJ launched the war on poverty in '64, his team set a deadline, which I just I just love that little historical fact. They launched this war on poverty, and they're like, "All right, by 1976, we got this." And like they didn't get there, but they cut poverty in half. And I just love that the idea that at the highest levels of government, we were like, this is a goal we're going to set and do. It seemed like that was the thing back then, right? JFK said, we're going to you know, land astronauts on the moon by the end of the decade. And like we were not even close when he made that speech. Yeah. LBJ setting those goals. What happened? You know, you're a sociologist. What, what <laughs> happened to diagnose America? What happened to us over the course of the past 50 years? We did get a lot less productive. And I think that you know, one of the things that we should take home from that fact is, you know, 50 years ago, the country was kind of sold a bag of goods. And it was like, all right, if we get rid of all these unions and these worker protections, we're just going to explode with economic dynamism. And we're going to get some inequality, but you won't care because the economy is going to be so hot, like everyone's going to be winning. And we took that bet, right? And the unions lost a lot of power. Yeah. And workers' jobs got a lot worse. And we got the inequality, but we didn't get the dynamism to quote a book called Radical Markets, which I learned a lot from. And so I think that, you know, one thing that we should take is like whenever we hear that bargain come up, well, you kind of have to live with all this poverty if you want this. Mm-hmm. I think we, sh- we should question that. History suggests it's not so simple. And it's also remarkable because when you look at what we also spend money on in this country, right? How many trillions of dollars? I think the calculation is about $3 trillion was spent on the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. We spend upwards of $900 billion a year on the national security defense. Not to say that we don't need that, uh, but one would argue it's a lot of money. And put into perspective, the you know, as you start to calculate the cost of you know lifting up, especially the 5 million Americans in deep poverty in this country who are living in $4 a day, where does that rank compared to the 
you know, annually, we spend about $6 trillion a year in this country, the annual budget. That's, that's right. And so one of the ways of answering that is to think of how much we spend on, on tax breaks, which is $1.8 trillion a year. So it's double our military spending. It's just an enormous amount of money that's, that's basically collected by the top 20, 10, and 1% of the country. The tax breaks technically intended to help, like rhetorically, to help lift people up, right? I guess. I mean, yeah. I feel like a lot of it just comes from from lobbying and, and it gets it gets, you know, sunk into the budget. You know, some of it's an accident. Like we talked about the mortgage interest deduction earlier. That was just accident of history. Like we had a mortgage interest deduction back in the day before most Americans owned their home and it wasn't a big deal. It was to help small businesses. And then after the GI Bill, when we just started like handing out all these mortgages and kind of created the white middle class homeownership society. Suddenly, we had this deduction in the tax code that a lot of Americans were taking. And then, you know, you had kind of lobbying pressure come in that kind of got sucked in and, and locked in. So a lot of these things are kind of accents of history that just have interest groups behind them now. Yeah, one of those things is the tax code. You talk about, you know, how complex it is and how that reinforces this whole thing. And it's always a shock to some Americans uh, how simple tax filing is in a number of other countries versus here in the U.S., where it's almost intentionally made difficult. I think intentionally is the right word here. Reagan famously said taxes should be hard, and they are. So in, in a lot of other countries, Japan, the Netherlands, for example, the equivalent of the IRS in those countries just does your taxes. Mm-hmm. And it sends you a note saying, you owe this many taxes. And you can you can say, no, I don't. You know, you can kind of uh, appeal, but most folks don't, you know, because there's an efficiency there. And doing your taxes literally takes like a commercial break uh, worth of time. Uh, for for most of those folks, but you're right. Our our tax code is is incredibly complex, and in that complexity, there's shenanigans, right? And tax avoidance, and claiming that your business acts actually, you know, in the Cayman Islands or in or in Ireland, we've defunded the IRS in a way that they just get outperformed every year by those shenanigans. There's a proposal by economists that suggests that, you know, the IRS has kind of this stain on it. I think a lot of Americans. Oh, yeah, probably one of the least, the least popular, I mean, on a, in a government that is very unpopular, probably one mm-hmm. of the least popular parts. So their suggestion is um, we kind of create another uh, enforcement agency just for the top, you know, 5% of Americans, just to make sure the richest among us are, are doing their fair share. It'd be like the Consumer Finance Protection Agency, but to make sure the rich pay their taxes. I think it's a good idea. Yeah, no, it's, it's fascinating. Having watched the, I remember the 2016 presidential debate when Hillary Clinton accused Donald Trump of not paying all of his taxes. Yeah. And Trump flipped it on his head and said, yeah, because I'm smart. Yeah, yeah. I think that one of the things that Trump had a unique ability to do was to connect to a feeling of, economic despair yeah. in a lot of areas of the country. And I think that's one of the reasons his his uh, foothold in the Republican Party remains un- unmatched. And I think a lot of the, the candidates right now are going in on the culture war, but they don't have the, the economic populism message down like Trump, Trump had. We're talking about trade and China. And even when he talked about immigration, often he was talking really in an economic way. And so I think that, you know, melding that part of Trump with this other part, this unapologetic billionaire part, it's, it's paradoxical. 
it's interesting though, because now, you know, I see it across the board, even as I cover like, you know, continuing aid packages to Ukraine, Zelensky is going to be back requesting more. U.S. has given close to $100 billion to Ukraine. And, you know, a couple of weeks ago when the, when the wildfires happened in Maui, they're like, why are we giving more to Ukraine? We need to be, you know, spending more here at home. You have seen this sort of rise up and it comes against the backdrop of the war on terrorism, pulling out of Afghanistan, kind of sort of pulling out of the world, reinvesting here in America. And yet at the same time, what you hear from many Americans is, well, people just got to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, right? You just got to work harder uh, to do that. Wait, you know, what you're proposing, Matt Desmond, is just redistribution of income. You're just a, a socialist. You're a communist. You know, people tend to conflate the two, of course. And, you know, you have kind of both trend lines happening where we should be investing more here at home. And yet, at the same time, the idea of the haves giving more to the have nots is still deeply unpopular in many parts of this country. Yeah. I wonder if you think it's a belief or a propaganda, you know, and like Hannah Arendt in her book on totalitarianism, you know, she has this line that she says, you know, propaganda isn't something you believe, it's something that organizes us. And I feel like the bootstrap stuff is kind of like that. I think a lot of us don't believe it, but we say it. It's the ethos. It's like, I feel like it's, you know, belongs in the dollar bill. Yeah, but I also think it's losing its power. I, you know, I talked to a lot of folks in a lot of different communities, left, right, and center. And I think that the kind of just pull yourself up mantra is facing the realities of a job market that is just not delivering for a lot of folks. And a lot of folks know it, right? So if you're a a man without a college degree today, your real wages, your inflation adjusted wages are less than they were 50 years ago. You know, and I think a lot of folks are looking at that job market, looking at stagnant wages, looking at rising rents and housing costs, looking at the age of home ownership going up and up, looking at their savings going down. And, you know, they know, you know, folks can't work them, themselves out and um, they can see it in their own lives. So I don't know. I think that that, that propaganda is, is losing some, some power and some steam. And now what's next? And I think that's the question. Like, what story do we tell now? And I don't think we have that new story yet. When you look at policy solutions, do you see solutions coming out of the right? Do you see solutions coming out of the left? Is there some combination of certain philosophies or certain ideas from either side? Because, you know, you'll see criticism from those on the right for the policies uh, you're seeing in places like Portland and San Francisco and Seattle, where the homeless population increases. So just curious in terms of your diagnosis as you've done this deep dive into these issues, policy solutions that, you know, you feel could be effective, again, as we talk about the scale here in the U.S.? Yeah, I feel like there's two questions in there. What what would work and what could we get past Congress? And mm-hmm. I think, man, those are two different questions. There's a lot of things that can work. You know, we do not need to outsmart this problem. You know, uh, there's no silver bullet, but we kind of know what works. And COVID gave us this incredible demonstration case, right? Uh, a child allowance that reaches a lot of Americans, can make a giant difference in the lives of, of struggling families with kids. We know that when renters finally receive a housing voucher, after years and years on the waiting list, they move to better neighborhoods, their families get secure, and they use their extra money to buy more food. You know, their kids become stronger, less anemic. They, they work. And so we just underdose the solutions in America. But we also, like, we need solutions that are root cause solutions not just let's help you out with this tough situation, but we need those situations to go away. And so I think that means really confronting exploitation in the country, exploitation of workers and and of renters. 
And so I really like policies that give workers more power. So I like the idea of sectorial bargaining, which you see in, in Europe. It's a very wonky phrase, right? But it just means, hey, if enough workers take a vote, let's trigger the Secretary of Labor. And that forms a national bargaining panel. And that can result in terms that cover an entire industry. So like, we're not talking about, let's organize this Starbucks. Okay, let's go down the block, organize that Starbucks. We're talking about all Starbucks and all coffee shops in, in one go. I think that could be incredibly effective. And I think anything that expands housing choice for low-income renters really makes sense. And that can, like, different markets need different things, right? But one of the things that the book is really pushing for is expanding home ownership opportunities for low-income families. And there's plenty of opportunities to do that. And that's a way to kind of like take their exploitation off the market, uh, so to speak. Now, what are the political constraints? And it used to be the case that Republicans had ideas about poverty. You know, uh, George Romney, Mitt Romney's father, had these like incredibly radical ideas about segregation, where he was like going to remove tax breaks to communities that continue to be segregationists. That's Nixon's HUD secretary. You know, uh, Nixon uh, floated the idea of a universal basic income through the negative income tax idea. And so, you know, it used to be the case that there were ideas coming out of the right. And we should mention George Romney, Mitt's father, ran for president in 68, would lose to Nixon, of course. That's right. And so I think, you know, but the modern conservative party is rather quiet about poverty. I, If I was a Republican voter, I would want to demand to know what my elected officials are going to do about all this poverty and inequality in America. There are ideas in the Democratic Party right now that I find very exciting, including bringing back the um, child tax credit that did so much in COVID. We'll see where the political winds shift, I guess. When you look across the country where a federal system, are there certain states or localities that you see as shining examples that if replicated nationally could be effective? There are a lot of states doing a lot of cool things. And one of the joys I have for my work is going around and meeting organizers and frontline service providers that are coming up with these really dynamo ideas. I think, though, that without a serious federal investment, we can only go so far. And so, you know, it's like we can think about, man, there's this eviction diversion program in Philadelphia, which is awesome and working. And we can think of the kind of land banks in Houston that are providing folks opportunities to live in like democratically controlled cooperative housing. And, you know, we can kind of talk about all these ideas, but we, we just need investment coming from the top or else we're not going to, we're not going to get there. So one of the things you brought up is the successes of the sixties and seventies were these movements, uh, partially yeah. the civil rights movement, motivating, putting pressure on lawmakers. Do you see any movements today that have a sign of hope here? You know, I'm sure many people listening to this say, but i what can I do as an individual? How, how can I help solve this, either as part of a movement, as a voter? What do I need to be pushing for to ensure that we are able to start to, you know, start to fix this? Yeah, there's a lot of groups around the country and at the national level putting in work. You know, there's a new labor movement. There's the poor people's campaign. There is um, tenant rights movements that are stronger now than they've they've been since the Great Depression. And so we created a website to elevate their work. It's called endpovertyusa.org. And so if folks are interested in plugging in, they can go to this website. It, it showcases anti-poverty groups working in every state and at the national level. And, you know, these groups are, are exciting, they're fun, they're joyous, raucous places to be a part of. So I suggest plugging in, you know, with your time and resources. If that's a big step for you, I think there are other steps that we could take to divest from poverty and kind of 
start becoming poverty abolitionists, you know, in our own, in our own lives. We can shop with a, an eye toward economic justice in solidarity with the poor. So let's divest from exploitative union busting companies and let's give our money to companies treating their workers well. And consulting organizations like B Corps really matters for this. B Corps or any of these organizations, like, do they have a list saying, where should I be doing my grocery shopping? Where should I be buying my clothing? Exactly. So B Corp ranks and awards like high marks to corporations doing right by their workers and right by the world. You can go to a place called Union Plus if you're interested in like what what beer is Union made, what candy. You know, uh, if you're going to mail a package, you know, UPS is unionized, FedEx is not. All those differences, I think, can can add up. Consumer activism can make a big difference, and it's one way we can also just keep top of mind. This idea that I'm going to go about my life and about the world in a way that that is supporting folks below the poverty line, not exploiting them. Yeah, you've probably seen that more. I mean, I feel like I've seen it more environmentally in recent years than when it comes to which companies are paying a living wage. Yeah. You know, if you walk down the streets of London, uh, some of the independent shops have these stickers and they say this shop pays a living wage. And our shops have a lot of stickers on our doors these days, but like (laughs) you have no idea how much the workers are getting paid in there. And so I'd love to see marketing campaigns that say, you know, shop here because we're doing right by our workers. And I think that you're right. In environmentalism, I think there is a balance where, you know, we're not going to solve climate change by hang drying our laundry. Paper straws, Matt. Yeah, but but it matters, though. I mean, that stuff matters. And it matters to making it a personal investment and it matters for building political will and that will can translate into real political and corporate action. And so I do think you can air too much, right, on the individual solutions, but I don't think we should run away from those solutions either when it comes to writing ourselves into the story. You know, one theme here, and we've discussed it a couple of times, is the uncomfortable truth that the top 20%, that the, that the haves need to live with the fact that, you know, again, not purposeful, at least not by some, but that you're benefiting from the have-nots continuing not to have. I'm curious when we talk about these other examples in the other developed economies, when it comes to the fact that they don't have the poverty rates that we that we have here in America, what do their haves not have that we, if, if you get my drift, are their top 20% um, not doing as well as our top 20% in order to ensure that their lower 20% are not as low as our lower 20%. Yes, that's exactly right. The trade-off we've made is if you if you ascend the, if you are lucky enough to make it to the top of the ladder in America, you can have a lot of income, you can be incredibly rich by global standards. But you also have to live in a country with yawning inequality and you often have to live with this dynamic of private opulence, public poverty. You use that phrase a lot in the book. Yeah. You walk out your $3 million condo in San Francisco and you confront street homelessness on your block. You drive your very nice car in terrible gridlock Atlanta traffic because you haven't invested in public transportation. And so I think that in a way your, your incomes are higher, but that doesn't mean your quality of life is higher necessarily. And I think that When you look at the safety that a lot of European countries have, the robust public infrastructure, the healthy relationship between work and and life balance, I think that's a deal that a lot of us would, would, would make, even if it means we have to give a bit more in taxes. 
What is the proportion uh, offhand, if you know, of our income inequality vis-a-vis some of the other countries in our market basket? How out of whack are we compared to those countries? Violently out of whack. I think that, you know, one way to think about it is it's, I think we're, we're closer to India than we are to, you know, Germany, for example. In terms of our proportion, in terms of the haves to have not. Our level of inequality, yeah. And as you said, it leads to these situations of walking out of your multimillion dollar condo and confronting street poverty. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think that when you are in cities in the developing world, like Lagos, for example, you you see what America could become if this accelerates. You know, you, you see these giant, beautiful homes surrounded by barbed wire fences and private security officers and things like that. I see that in South Africa too, yeah. Sure. And I don't want to be, you know, uh, dramatic here or anything, but I think that that tension, that dynamic that locks in in a lot of American life is also something that affects a lot of Americans, no matter how secure we are in our money. And I think that there's an old line from this book um, called The Book of Sands where the guy goes, if you want your people to build a ship, don't gather the wood, but make them long for the edge of the sea. And I think that there needs to be an argument where we where we say, look, you know, the end of poverty is going to cost something. Okay, this is not an everybody wins book, but I think that what we are going to give up is uh, is worth it because what we're going to get is a much more dynamic, safer, freer country. And I I just think a lot of us are down with that project. I I feel like. In order to get things done in this country, you almost need, you know, I, I hate to use the comparison, but like a 9-11 type scenario, right? You need a disaster. That's the crazy thing about COVID. We had this disaster and the country came, you know, like the government responded mm-hmm. with swift, bold relief and folks used the pandemic not just to deliver programs, but to deliver them better and to wage a second war on the war on poverty. The, the economic catastrophe was so acute, but we're not, we don't remember the COVID crisis like that. You know, we remember it for the deaths and remember it for the isolation, the school closures and all that other stuff, but we don't remember it for the economic ruin, financial ruin, because it, because a lot of us got better mm. in COVID financially. And that was because the government, and so that's the crazy thing. And, but the problem we have today is people like to, you know, blame the inflation that we now have due to that spending. Yeah. So, there is a ton of debate within the field of economics about what's causing the inflation. I don't think you can take spending off the table, but I also think there's a lot of evidence that shows that corporate markups were driving a lot of the inflation during COVID, and we should think about that. There was a ton of inflation after World War II as well. Like the GI Bill took like like 15 or 16% of the, the federal government budget. It was like enormous, right? And so, yeah, they got a lot of inflation, but they handled it. And so I don't think that we look back at the New Deal and say, man, that was okay with the inflation. And we look back and say, that created the American middle class. And so we we let that opportunity slip. It wasn't like we had to let it go because the inflation. We've, had, we've been down this road before. I want to end here with a basic question. Are you an optimist that we will get ourselves out of this as somebody who studied American history, as someone who, uh, in a sociologist, someone who studied this whole issue? Where are you on the spectrum of, of optimist to pessimist? Oh, totally optimistic. Like, super optimistic. I think that you're seeing a different spirit move in America on this issue. You're seeing a ton of Americans in rural communities and urban communities just be fed up with poverty. You're seeing us come off 
a pandemic where we really flexed our muscle and provided folks a real safety net, like we did actually in the pandemic look more like Norway and Germany instead of like Brazil or, or Paraguay. For Interestingly, a, a year of that was under Trump. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Trump signed two of the three major relief packages. You know, in fact, he signed the second relief bill, which provided $900 billion in, in relief spending the same day he called the acting AG and told him to like say that the government was, you know, the election was corrupt. Right. So it's and like and, and interesting... he actually wanted McConnell to spend even more money. Yeah. So interesting cross currents, you know, in Washington, the, the strange times. But you're right. It was a time of, you know, it was a time of incredible government action. Matt, thank you. Uh, the book is Poverty by America. Appreciate your incredible research, the time you've spent with us also. And uh, we will uh, make sure to link to it in the show notes for everyone to read. I appreciate you. Thank you, sir. All right. I want to thank Matt Desmond again for that conversation. You can find his book, Poverty by America, via the link in the show notes or wherever you get your books. All right. Before we leave here, a reminder to consider joining Mo News Premium. If you like conversations like this one, you want to support our ongoing coverage day to day, as well as original coverage, please consider joining over at mo.news slash premium. It's a way to get access to an extra Instagram account, early access to podcasts. You can get it for just $7 a month or $70 a year. That is two free months if you join the annual package for a whole year. Please consider it. You will not regret it. Thanks for listening again. I will see you guys soon.